Today's passage is from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came back to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that the Jews, they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. And to the angel in the church of Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Good morning. All right. The seven messages to the seven churches of the apocalypse. You know, uh, normally these messages make for uh, seven sermons. (laughs) I'm just saying. So... I started in the first service. I'm just going to get it where, you know, keep going where I left it. (laughs) I don't see anybody from the first service here again. All right. You'll tell them what it is about. So I'm just going to get going. Seven, seven messages in one here this morning. Okay. Let's go. Um, so let me, let me remind us that, 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 uh, contrary to what I thought before, the whole book of Revelation is addressed to these seven churches in Asia. You know, I, I used to think that it was just this first three chapters. Now, it's the whole book. Chapters 1 to 22 is the whole book, a letter to these uh, seven churches. And uh, the fact that it's a, a letter means that uh, this, this letter is, is addressing an, a specific situation. You know, we, we write letters uh, with a purpose. And uh, Jesus, through John, was addressing the specific situation of these church, churches, which was that at the moment, the, the churches in, in Asia Minor, they were facing persecution. They were experiencing, they, they were under pressure. They were experiencing staunch uh, opposition. And Jesus writes them to warn them. He writes them to warn them, hold on to your hats, basically. Because as bad as things are right now, things are about to get worse. Things are about to get worse. And he, he, he writes them to, to warn them that, that this mounting pressure that the churches are about to experience will force them to the razor-sharp point of decision that, where they're going to have to decide between compromise and, and faithfulness. So 
Jesus writes them to encourage them to stand firm. He writes them to tell them, guys, do not, do not lose heart. Things are going to get worse. But, but, things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. See, things may, may look like they're out of control. It may look like that that there's no hope. But things are not as they seem. And, and this is, this is, that things are not as they seem is the, is the, the basic conviction of the book of Revelation. This is why it is wrote. So what does Jesus do in order to show them that things are not as they seem? He reveals himself to them. He reveals himself. And, um, he reveals uh, himself to them so that not only to, to, uh, help them see the unseen realities of the future, he reveals himself to them to help them see the unseen realities of the present, of the right now. He, he's telling them, uh, uh, guys, there's so much more to reality that, that, that we can see, that we can grasp. There, there's, there's more to reality that meets the eye, way more, and, and not, just, not just the eyes. All of our unaided senses, all of them, all, all five of them, there's a way more to reality that we can perceive. So we need help to perceive. We need this unseen reality of the present. We need it revealed to us. And, and that's what the, what the book of Revelation uh, uh, is about. And it, so he, he reveals himself not, not only to motivate them, he reveals himself uh, to them to equip them. To equip them, to equip them to do the one job, one job that the church has. It's one mission, which is to bear faithful witness to Christ. That's, that's the whole reason why the church exists. That's, that's the, the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples before ascending to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, and You're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and, and, and in Samaria and Judea and all the ends of the world. You have to be my witnesses. That's the main job uh, of the church. And yes, it entails lots of things. It entails uh, worship. It entails um, obedience. But, but all of those things are encapsulated in this one mission. Um, bottom line, the job of the church is to bear witness. See, the, the, the task of, of bearing witness to Christ is to make visible that which is otherwise invisible. The, the task of bearing witness to Christ is to show forth the reality of who Jesus is right now. And we need to see Christ's self-revelation to be better equipped to be church, to be God's new humanity. We, we need his self-revelation to be human, to be human. This is why God made us. And what I'm going to be focusing uh, this morning as I as, uh, take you through the, the seven messages to the seven churches is that if we lose sight of, of this self-revelation of Jesus, if we lose sight of who Jesus is right now in the present, then we will compromise. We will compromise. So let me pray and then, and then I'll start. Um, Lord, we pray that um, uh, you may give us eyes to see you this morning as we worship together. We uh, pray that you may aid our senses so we can encounter you this morning. Lord, may your word touch us today in such a way that we cannot dismiss it or, or set it aside. May your word pierce us 
unsettle us. And at the same time, may your word comfort us and restore us and encourage us and transform us that we may bear witness um, to your glory. Amen. So to the chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven star in his right hand, who walks among the, the golden lampstands. See, this is the, um, anytime Jesus is in, in, introduces himself to, to the churches, he uses an image that he has already used in chapter 1. And in fact, this is the first vision that, that uh, um, John had of Jesus. In, in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, And then I turned to see the voice uh, that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. This is the first vision that he sees, and we know uh, uh, by the end of chapter 1 that, that the lampstands are the churches. So this is the, the, the first unseen reality that, that John is man uh, led into. He says, God is, uh, uh, Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. Among, that, that's in the mist. Not above, looking down, not outside, looking in. In the mist. In the midst. That means that Jesus, right now, is here among us. See, and, and it is from the middle of the lampstands that Jesus then dictates the seven messages to, to these historical and real churches that were in Asia Minor in the, in the first century. Chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 2, he says to Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the name's sake, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So, as we said earlier, uh, Ephesus is facing opposition, opposition to their faith. Uh, and they are uh, resisting the pressure of, of participating in idolatrous worship. They're, they are resisting the pressure of uh, bowing down to Caesar. They, they, are, they are not yielding in their faith. And, and Jesus commends them for that. And, and on top of that, Jesus says, they are, they are discerning people. They are discerning people. Um, in particular, they had discerned uh, a doctrinal inconsistency in, in a group within the church who called themselves uh, apostles. And uh, after examining these groups and their teaching, the church determined, determined that they were false teachers. And therefore, they were evil. And they exposed them like that. Even in verse 6, it says that, like Jesus himself, they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We will see what, what they taught. But they hated that, just like Jesus. And Jesus commends them. See, the, 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 uh, the church in Ephesus was committed to orthodoxy. It was committed to truth, uh, and it was committed to theology. So here we have this church uh, that was energetic in their, in their witness, uh, in, in their uh, teaching, uh, patient in their suffering, orthodox in their faith. What could have possibly been wrong with this church? Verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So Jesus is telling to Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, you are enduring patiently. 
you, you, you're not denying my name. You're committed to orthodoxy, and that's great. But you're doing that without love, without love. In fact, he says, you, 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 you abandon the love, the love you had at first. Other translations say, say you, you have abandoned your first love. Almost every uh, uh, Bible scholar that I read in preparation for the sermon uh, thinks that this has something to do with Jesus, Jesus that they forgot uh, the way that they loved Jesus when they began their journey of faith. I think that this, is go, this goes a, a little beyond that. I think... It's not that they forgot how they loved Jesus at the beginning of their journey. It's that they forgot the way that Jesus loved them. They forgot that it was Jesus who loved them first. They forgot their first love. It was Jesus who loved them first. In uh, uh, the letter First uh, John ch- chapter 4, verse 19, uh, the Apostle John, same author, I think, uh, says, We love because... He loved us first because he loved us first. And I think that the, 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 the church in Ephesus forgot about this. They forgot that, that, um, that, that Jesus loved them first. And, 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 and what happens is that when we forget that um, Jesus loved us first, then we can easily and inadvertently go back to our old ways of thinking. We can easily go back to thinking that God's love can be earned. So for the, for the um, Christians in Ephesus, that might have looked like, looked like oh, God, God must love me because of my sound doctrine. God, God must love me because of my fine theology. He, might, he, he must love me because of my orthodoxy, because of my witnessing. But when we think like this, when we operate like this, our witness is an ineffective. Our witness is inaccurate because... Although it may, not, it, it, it may not appear so, we are compromising. We are compromising. Why? The church in Ephesus is seeking to bear witness. Why? How, is that, how, how are they compromising? Because they're seeking to compromise with the tools of the beast, with the tools of the world. They're trying to show that you can earn God's love. That's, that's how the world thinks. And see, what, ha- what happens when we do that uh, is that we start bearing witness not to Christ, but to ourselves. Because we start saying, instead of saying, look at this guy, look at Jesus, look at him, he, he loves me, I mean, even me, I'm a mess, he loves me. But we want to start thinking that, that we can earn God's love, we start saying, if you want that guy to love you, you need to be like me. You need to think like me, you need to say the things that I say, you need to think the, the things that I think. You, you see uh, uh, the difference? Although Jesus praises uh, uh, some aspects of their witnessing, it is precisely their witness with which he is concerned. Um, this is why uh, Christ chooses to introduce himself with, with the image of, of the lampstands. Uh, see, his statement is intended to remind them that their primary role in relation to him should be that of a light of witness to the outside world, to the unbelieving world. That the role of the lamp is to, is to show, the, show forth the light. And Jesus says, you are bearing the light, but you're bearing it inaccurately. Uh, um, you're doing it without love. And if you don't repent, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, I will remove your lampstand from its place. I will no longer have you 
bear witness to me. Lose sight of Christ's self-revelation as him who loved us first, and our orthodoxy becomes narrow-minded, nip-ticking, pedantic, condescending, judgmental legalism. Without first love, hatred of the practices uh, of the Nicolaitans becomes hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. Without first love, hatred uh, or rejection of homosexual practices becomes hatred of homosexuals themselves. It becomes hatred of of Muslims. It becomes, you name it, you get it? Now, while uh, uh, an overemphasis, they were doing great internally, right? They were doing great teaching. Uh, They were saying the right things, but they were not living by what they they were saying. And and, and although although they were doing great internally, they weren't doing great outwardly. But while an overemphasis on internal, internal doctrinal purity can lead to a lack of concern, a lack of love for the outside world, uh, the emphasis uh, can lead to over-identification with the world. And I think, I believe that, that to be the case of the, of the churches in Pergamon and Thyatira, the, the, the third and fourth churches. Um, in chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Jesus says to Pergamon, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you, you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. See, that they were doing great uh, um, towards the outside world. Like the church in Ephesus, they have not denied their faith. They have hold fast to his name. Even when the Romans tried to stamp out the, the, uh, the church by killing Antipas, uh, one of, their, of the leaders... The church in Pergamon stood firm. They were doing great towards the outside world. Same with the church in Thyatira, uh, chapter 2, verse 19. It says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Your latter works exceed the first. In, in, in verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus tells to the church in Ephesus, uh, Repent and do the works that you did at first. But to the church in Thyatira, it says, your, your uh, uh, latter works, they exceed the first. Because you, Thyatira, you have love. You have love. Again, verse 19, I know your works and your love. So Thyatira had what Ephesus lacked. But Thyatira lacked what Ephesus had, which was discernment. Discernment. A lack of discernment that was having their witness eroded from within. A lack of discernment that was compromising their theology. To the church in Pergamon, Jesus says in verses of, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might, number one, eat food sacrificed to idols, and, number two, practice sexual immorality. See, while, while Ephesus were, were doing, doing away with, with fa- uh, false teachings, uh, Pergamon was either unaware of or tolerant of these teachings. Same with Thyatira, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. 
But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to, guess what, practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Same thing. Food, food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality were the major issues of the first uh, century Christians. Um, and see, uh, Jezebel and the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, they were all teaching the same thing. Same thing. That it was okay to do those things. All three of them were teaching that it was okay to compromise. To compromise. And this teaching was infiltrating the church. And, and it, was, it was coming from within the church. These churches were uh, bearing loving witness of Christ to the outside world. But in spite of that, they were tolerating a spirit of compromise. Now, how on earth did these teachings even made it to the door, through the door of the churches in Pergamon and Thyatira? How? Well... The same way they get through the door of our churches today. They were presented in gospel language. We can hear uh, Christians saying things like, God, God made me with this desire, so, so he must want me to, to give free reign to them. We can hear a Christian saying, Jesus loves me and therefore he must want me to be happy. And, and because he wants me to be happy, he must want me to have unrestrained sex because that makes me happy. Um, he must want me to, to leave my wife and, 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 uh, uh, because she no longer makes me happy. He must want me to leave my church congregation because they no longer make me happy. He, he must want me to be comfortable at, at all costs, wealthy at all costs. That makes me happy. We can also hear a Christian saying, uh, Jesus died for our, uh, for, uh, our sins uh, to free us from the law so, so, so we don't have to obey the law. New covenant. We're not bound by the law. And you know, uh, it, might be, it, it, might, it might be that these teachings are led through the door out of a, a genuine desire to be loving, to be a loving and an inclusive community. If that is the case, the tolerance of, of, of such teachings only reveals a distorted view of what true love is. Yes, the church must be an inclusive community in the sense that all are welcome, and all are welcome. But the church is not to be inclusive of all ideas. All of us are welcome, but then we are called to repent. We are called to change our minds. We are called to submit our thinking to Jesus' thinking. See, hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans is not meant to be hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. But in turn, love of the Nicolaitans is not meant to be love of their ideas either. You see, to Thyatira, uh, Jesus introduces himself as the one who has eyes, eyes like flame of fire. Now, now this might be a, a very scary image, isn't it? Uh, because, you know, his, his, his eyes are bright, his eyes are radiant, they Pierce the darkness. They, they penetrate your soul and they expose your deepest fears. Scary image. But what we need to understand is that it is also a loving image. It is also a comforting image. 
Because those eyes uh, only penetrate our souls in order to cleanse us, in order to heal us, in order to transform us. Jesus looks at us and, and through us, not to condemn us, but to set us free. To set us free. That, that's what true love does. Uh, that's what true love is. In, in, in later in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove, I discipline. Love confronts, lose sight of the revelation of him who loves us truthfully. And we, we will have a distorted view of love that will destroy us from within. See, when we uh, allow teachings like that to infiltrate and then uh, take hold of our church, uh, um, our witnesses to the world, uh, they, it eventually becomes uh, totally inoffensive. It becomes inoffensive because we no longer challenge the darkness of the world, because we are conforming to the darkness of the world. And this is what happened to the church in Sardis, uh, chapter 3, uh, verses one, uh, uh, second half of verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus, the one who holds the life of the churches, the one who holds uh, the, the, the seven angels and the seven spirits of God that bring the church, life to the churches, he says, you're dead. You're dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You see, the, the church in Sardis what, was not what, what the unbelieving world would say, uh, would call a dead church. They were not. See, the, the, the churches in Asia Minor were facing persecution, but unlike the other churches of the Roman province of Asia, Sardis was not under pressure. They were not having to face persecution. Why? They were too harmless to persecute. Too harmless. Sure, you want to call yourself Christians? No problem. Heck, I can call myself Christians. And we can all be Christians together. And you can reach the world for Christ. We can all be Christians together. As long as the church accommodates. As long as the church looks elsewhere when it has to look elsewhere. As long as, as the church remains silent, you know. Of course, you can be a Christian. Yeah, and you can have your buildings and you can raise your hands and sing praises and pray. Yeah, absolutely. See, Sardis was not facing persecution because it had silently accommodated itself to the injustice and immorality of the city. It was not facing persecution because it was not, it was not raising its voice. It was not speaking up. Sardis, the church in Sardis was the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. See, some, some Bible scholars uh, have uh, good arguments to think that, in particular, uh, Sardis had silently accommodated itself to the sexual conventions of the city. 
And, you know, it is not clear whether Sardis fully engaged in, in, in immoral sexual behavior or if they just look elsewhere. It is not clear, but, but verse 4 hints to the fact that whichever one of those they did, whichever one of those it was, it was compromised. Uh, verse 4, uh, chapter 3, verse 4 says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. You have, you have a few of those. Of those. Implication? The vast majority of you have soiled your garment. You have compromised. For, for, for um, Sardis was, a, was, a busy, was busy and active. They did all the things associated with the Christian life. And they did those things in such a way that it won them the reputation of being alive. But for all the activity that they had... Their works were found incomplete. They were found incomplete because they were not doing the one great deed that any and every church is supposed to be doing, which is bear faithful, loyal, accurate witness to Christ. They didn't face persecution. They were the, they were the safe church. They were the church that did not take any risks. See, um, lose sight of the one who holds life in his hands. They, they lose sight of the one who holds life in his hands, and they, they sought life elsewhere. And what they found was death. Once, uh, once individual disciples and, and congregations lose sight of Jesus' self-revelation, the forms may remain, but the inner life of the Spirit will be gone, solid gone. And we'll find ourselves dead in our works, attempting to accomplish for God only what our human resources allow. We, we will no longer push ourselves into the deep water where we are beyond our own resources. We won't take risks. We will settle for, for being comfortable and safe. We will settle for having a reputation of being alive. And some of you may say, wait, wait, wait. Are you saying... That if we're not being persecuted, we're not bearing faithful witness to Christ, to the world? I'm saying that what Scripture shows is that if we're not experiencing pressure from the outside world, then yes, most likely we're not bearing faithful witness to Christ. Pressure. And, you know, persecution, for, for sure, that's a form of pressure, but that is not the only one. And, and if, we, if we take a look to the, to the, to the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, I think this, this will be uh, clarified to us. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. See, to, to one of the churches uh, against which Jesus has no word of correction, no repro reproach whatsoever. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your affliction. Uh, literally, uh, is, I know your crushing pressure. The word tribulation, when, when, the, uh, uh, when the people of the time heard that word, the image that came to mind was probably uh, the image of someone being tortured by being uh, uh, um, laid down on the floor and having a big, heavy boulder laid upon him. 
crushing pressure. This is the image that probably came to mind to them. And what does he, the one who knows our pressure, because he walks among our churches, what does he, uh, who knows our pressure, say to them? Does he say, hey, um, I know your pressure, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to lift the pressure from you because my disciples should not be subject to difficulty and danger. Does that he say that? No, he says, I know your pressure. In verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. About to suffer. And the, church in, uh, the Christians in the church in Smyrna might have said, wait, wait, wait. Jesus, Jesus. You know what I heard? <laughs> I thought you said, I thought you said the pressure that you're about to suffer. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, it, you, I, I'm pretty sure you meant the pressure that we are suffering because, you know, the pressure that we are about to suffer, that, that's kind of cruel, isn't it? But you're not laughing. And Jesus said, no, I said about. I said about. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And Jesus says, do not be afraid as the pressure now begins to mount. And some of you are going to be imprisoned, and some of you are even going to be killed. Hang on to me. Be faithful unto death. Why would Jesus do that? Why, why, why would he not lift the pressure? Does he not love us or something? What's up with that? It's because tribulation... Tribulation is the pressure that takes place when the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of humans that are in rebellion against God. Tribulation is the pressure felt uh, 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 at the clashing of values. It's the pressure experienced when idols are being exposed, when human pride is being confronted with the call to repentance. Tribulation is the pressure experienced along the line where kingdoms clash, where the kingdom of light clashes with the kingdom of darkness. This is why having said, I know your tribulation, Jesus does not go on to say, and it is wrong, so I'm going to lift it. To lift up the pressure would be to retrieve the light from the darkness. To retrieve the light from the battle. And the lampstand of Smyrna, they were shining ever so brightly. And the darkness of the city could not tolerate it. They could not take it. They wanted to extinguish the light. The lampstand was experiencing pressure. To be uh, witnesses of Jesus to the world is to inevitably experience pressure. It's to never be experience pressure. And you know, uh, our teenagers, they know about that. They, they know what experiencing pressure uh, 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 in the world is. They know what it, what it, what it is to, 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 uh, to be pressured to compromise in your integrity, to, in your sexual integrity, to be pressured to compromise to, to, uh, in the way they're dating, in, in, in sex, in, in cheating, in exams. You know, they know. Uh, um, and for that matter, our, our college students, they also know. Young people that is committed to follow Christ, they know what the pressure is. Parents who are seeking to fulfill their God-given responsibilities to raise their children to follow Jesus, we certainly feel uh, what the Christians in Smyrna were were feeling. And so to uh, professionals in the workplace 
who, who seek to, to, uh, to stand up for integrity, uh, who, who stand up to their bosses when their bosses are trying to do something illegal or dishonest. And they know what the pressure is, the pressure of feeling that you, you may lose your job and the pressure of actually losing your job. The more faithful we are to Jesus, the greater the pressure. See, Smyrna, and Smyrna was not the only one suffering pressure. Uh, Ephesus was uh, suffering pressure. Uh, Pergamon, Thyatira, they were suffering pressure. Even Philadelphia, the, the, the one other church to, to, to which Jesus have, have no word of, of, of correction, they were also facing pressure. Um, to the church in Philadelphia, uh, Jesus says, uh, verse three, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. You have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, I'm going to make the Jews are rejecting you. That's why he's telling them this. They were, they were, they were experiencing uh, opposition from the, uh, from the uh, established religious or, uh, um, institutions. They were being persecuted by the Jews as well. See, uh, um, in verse uh, 7, in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus introduces himself as the Holy One, as the True One. Both titles that are used in the Old Testament only of God. But here they were um, um, Christian Jewish or Jews that were Christian using these titles of Christ. And, And the Jews think that's blasphemy. And the doors of the, of the, of the synagogue are, are shut in their faces because the, the local synagogues in, uh, claimed uh, that only those worshiping within their doors were the true people of God. So the Christians who were Jews were excommunicated. They were persecuted. They were disowned and, and by family and community. But Jesus tells them, things are not as they seem. See, the door of the synagogue may be shut to you, for you. But I, the one, the one who opens and no one shuts, I have opened another door for you. The door to the synagogue that finally matters, that ultimately matters. The door to fellowship with me, to community with me, to, to uh, um, reconciliation with me. See, uh, um, this self-revelation, this is the self-revelation of, of Christ that helped them endure, that kept them from compromising. And you know, there, there are two uh, uh, possible interpretations of the, of the image of the open door. One of them being the one that we just, I just uh, told you about, the, the, door, the open door of salvation, the, the, the door that brings to Christ the reconciliation uh, with God. And, and the other uh, image, the second, is a reference to a door of opportunity. And this is the way that the Apostle Paul used that image uh, in, in his epistles. And to the, to the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, he tells the, uh, verse 9, he tells the Corinthians, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective witness, of effective work has opened for me. The open door is also a door of opportunity. A door of opportunity to tell others about the gospel of the open door. See, but b- b- those, both of these doors, they, they entail 
difficulties. They entail obstacles. See, uh, look at how Jesus uh, describes the door of salvation in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, he says, But as small is the gate, or the door, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The door of salvation is narrow, it is difficult, it entails that we face our own darkness. And who wants to do that? Our own darkness, our own pride. That's not easy. That is, that is overwhelming. That is devastating. It is hard. And the door of, of opportunity, after telling the Corinthians that the door had opened at Ephesus, immediately, in the same verse, the Apostle Paul says, and there are many that oppose me. Many that oppose me. See, when Jesus sets before us, before the church, an open door of opportunity, it does not mean that there are not going to be obstacles. And the church in Philadelphia faced many obstacles. They faced strong, even fanatical opposition from the hostile religious establishment. And, and they faced uh, those obstacles, how? With little power of their own. Little power of their own. Isn't, isn't that encouraging? That the church before which Jesus sets an open door of opportunity lacked the resources to overcome the obstacles that came with that door of opportunity. But that's the way it should be. Because Jesus always calls his church into mission, before, uh, be, uh, uh, into mission beyond our own resources. He wants us to depend on him. And you know, in, in the face of, of, of such obstacles and opposition, there's always that temptation to say, hey, hey, guys, we have but little power. We, we, we are poor. Let's not risk it. Let's, let's, let's just hunker down, you know. Let's just keep it quiet. Let's just lay low until the storm passes. And then when the storm passes, then, then we will be able to do lots of good. Lots of them. Let's lay low. But Jesus says, no time for laying low. Look, I have set before you an open door of opportunity. It's a door of opportunity. This is not a time to play it safe. It's a time to stand firm. It's a time to trust me. But see, if we lose sight of Jesus' self-revelation as the one who died and came to life, as the one who opens and no one can shut, we will relent under pressure. We will think that we uh, depend on our own human resources. And we will neither cold or hot. Um, um, to the church in Laodicea, uh, Jesus says, um, chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. Uh, I have prospered. I, I, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, this is the one church to which God has, has no... Not a, not a single word of, 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 of good things that they did, you know. He doesn't commend them at all. And, and here is a church that uh, so deeply for God that we actually 
do not depend on our human resources, that they were neither, neither cold or hot. That is, they, they had t- totally and absolutely forgotten what being church is all about. Nor, neither cold or, nor hot. See, the, the Jesus' words uh, may have uh, suggested the fact that Laodicea was, was a, uh, a city that lacked a, a natural local source of water. Uh, you know, so, so they have to, to br- bring their water from the neighboring cities of Hierapolis and uh, Colossae. And uh, Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs, and hot springs that, that were believed to have uh, medicinal effects. And uh, Colossae was famous for its cold water, which was uh, refreshing and pure and, and, and drinkable. Um, so when Jesus says, uh, you're neither cold nor hot, what Jesus is saying is that uh, um, you, you need to have cold water to refresh the believers within your congregation, nor hot medicinal water to heal the unbelieving world. It was totally ineffective in its witness, and thus it was distasteful to the Lord. Lukewarmness is caused by compromise, and the fact that they thought that they depended on their own resources shows how much they have conformed to the values of the world. They thought they were rich. They, they, they thought they didn't need anything. Um, but oh, they, they were so poor. They were so poor. And Jesus was not nauseated by their lukewarmness. See, uh, um, the book of Revelation uh, usually uh, is thought to be a, a, ju- a book on judgment. And there is a lot of, uh, of that in there. But, but uh, I agree with what Josh says in his, in his booklets if you have been reading them, the book of Revelation is actually a testimony to grace. A testimony to grace. Because what does Jesus do with this wretched church? What does he do? He moves towards them. He moves towards them. Chapter 3, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus counsels them to buy that which they did not have. But he's advising them to buy things that they, with all their earthly riches, could not possibly afford, could not possibly buy. Because life's true riches are only come by grace. And, and uh, what grace? I mean, he, he's, he's nauseated by their lukewarmness and about to, to vomit them. That's literally what it says. He's about to vomit them uh, out of his mouth. And what, what does he do? He opens the storehouse of his riches. He says, if you recognize your poverty, I will enrich you with my gold. If you recognize your nakedness, I will clothe you with my garments. If you recognize your blindness, I will make you see with my eyes. Lose sight of Jesus' self-revelation as the faithful and true witness, and we will become lukewarm. That is why there's no, no healing or, or refreshing, because when we lose sight of his revelation... 
the fire himself is gone. The well himself is gone. But not too far. Chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open your eyes and see. He's, he's standing right outside. And he's knocking. And he's waiting. We will only be able to fix our eyes on Jesus' Uh, self-revelation and receive the power of his revelation if we open the door and let him in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, uh, for the revelation you give us of yourself. Lord, we, uh, we acknowledge that we too often lose sight of it and that we too often withdraw from pressure. Thank you, Lord, because even so, you move toward us in grace, and you stand out at, uh, at the doors and knock. Give us eyes, Lord, to see you, hearts to follow you, that we may bless the whole world with our witness of you. May all the glory be to your name. Amen.